All right, welcome to the Race Car Podcast. Uh, so I guess this is the third episode, something like that, and it's another kind of an oddball, which is things that I'm going to do because it's stuff that I'm interested in. I suppose at some point I'll probably have to go more mainstream, you know, uh, some uh, some Ferrari or a, a Williams or a Porsche or something like that. I do have plans for that kind of stuff, but uh, today we're talking about Sweden, talking about Volvo, yep, talking about 1994's volvo 850 estate btcc car so i've always been big into touring cars i watched a lot of british touring cars whenever i could find it growing up which was usually on speed vision uh which would be on like motorsports mondial but sometimes i play the whole races which is cool and i think what i really liked about them was that the cars looked like cars so you know because it's british you had a ford mondeo which in the u.s that was a contour but it was the car you could very clearly see the race car in it. And I always like to think that if you had that car and you had the money, you could kind of build yourself a pretty reasonable facsimile of the real thing. And, you know, of course, the racing was excellent as well, because, you know, it's really about as close to full contact as you actually get in the world of racing. You have guys hitting each other's bumpers, cars banging together door to door. The cars were fast but they're not like stupid fast, like F1 or sports cars. So it seemed like you could go wheel to wheel like that without, you know, I mean, there was risk involved, but they, it seemed like they were very raceable. You know, you could really, you could go flat out and you weren't going 240 miles an hour. But then they came out with some BTCC video games, which is Toka, Toka 2. I think that later became the Grid series or something like that. I don't know. Um, but those are pretty much my favorite racing games of all time and actually what impressed me about those was how different they made the cars feel which is cool because you had the audi a4 which at the end so the games were from later than the car that we're talking about but you'd have the audi a4 which was all-wheel drive so on the start you just floor it and you're past everybody else you had the nissan primera uh i don't know if something for some reason the brakes on the car were great you could just stand on the brakes and you know break down to the inside of anybody and then i just remembered alan menu's blue and yellow Renault Laguna just being way better than the rest, but me not beating, you know, me not driving that car because I really wanted to beat menu at the time. He was like my nemesis. So a lot of my fondest racing memories are in this class of racing, even though it really wasn't something that we would get locally. So in this class of racing, I always said there is a car that stands out as cooler than all of the other cars. It wasn't a smashing success and it only existed for a single year. But there's just something awesome about seeing a Volvo station wagon out there, you know, flying off the curb on two wheels with Rickard Rydell. Um, it, it was just great to see. So that's the car today. It says 1994 Volvo 850 Estate BTCC car. So Volvo became involved in touring cars in the 80s, first through privateer teams, later their own factory team in 1985. They're racing the 240T and the ETCC, European touring car. Uh, Group A and the German DRM series. I guess the car is pretty successful, but Volvo withdrew factory support after a disagreement about uh, homologizing the cars. So they were required to build 500 of their Evolution version of the 240T, but they could only come up with 23 of them, saying the other 477 had been exported to America. The, ET, uh, the ETCC, which by this point was called just the ETC, ended up just pulling the... Uh, pulling Volvo uh, and their uh, homologization, and Volvo was done. 
So what, about seven years later or so, 1993, Volvo decides they want to go racing again, uh, this time in the British Touring Car Championship. So Volvo went to the Swedish company Stefansson Automotive to work out the prototype, and they wanted to use their 850 saloon as a base. The story goes that for whatever reason, when Stefansson went to pick up the shell to build the car around, Volvo only had station wagon shells available. This is kind of more of an annoyance than a problem, because anything Stephenson did to the estate car, which that's a station wagon in Eurospeak, uh, they could just do it to a regular saloon, which, again, in you know the United States, we call it a sedan. I like saloon better. I think it sounds cooler. So Volvo's senior, Bryce, uh, Volvo's senior vice president at the time, Martin Rybeck, uh, caught wind of the estate shell situation and quickly realized it could be an excellent marketing opportunity. The BTCC required four-door cars. Uh, the rules were designed to prevent coupes and hot hatches from being run, but it did not prohibit an estate. Nobody had ever run one, so Rybeck thought it was a great idea. Volvo kept the wagons a secret for as long as they could. In fact, even one of their contracted drivers, Richard Rydell, wasn't aware of the plan when he had signed for Volvo. He said, quote, if I would have known, I probably would have hesitated, but it was lucky that I didn't know. While this was a full factory effort, Volvo uh, farmed out the building and the racing of the cars to TWR, Tom Walkinshaw Racing. And Tom Walkinshaw is a name that you are definitely going to hear frequently on this podcast, because if there was something motorsports related, Tom Walkinshaw was into it. Tom ran uh, multiple times Le Mans winning Group C Jaguar team. If you've ever seen the white and purple silk cut Jaguars or the white, green and red Castrol Jaguars in IMSA, that's Tom Walkinshaw. Uh, he was an engineering director at Benetton for, uh, for their two driver in one manufacturer championships with Michael Schumacher. And actually, Tom Walkinshaw was also involved in recruiting Schumacher from Jordan. He bought and ran the Arrows F1 team. So Tom Walkinshaw has done some stuff. For drivers, uh, TWR brought aboard a pair with pretty vastly different experience. Uh, the aforementioned Rickard Rydell was a 26-year-old Swede who had most recently competed in All Japan F3. Also coming along with the ride was Jane Lammers, 38-year-old from the Netherlands, who was already a 24-hours Le Mans champion, having won with TW and Jaguar uh, in 1988. Lammers had previous experience in IndyCar and Formula 1 as well, so he was a pretty accomplished and respected racer. So TWR began development of the 850 and were actually pleasant, pleasantly surprised to find out that the long roof of the 850 estate actually gave it more downforce than the sedan version. Of course, it was, uh, this wasn't the determining factor of going forward with the wagon, which was really more down to marketing. The downforce was really just kind of a happy side effect. But as much as this was really a marketing exercise, for that reason, it would do Volvo no good to have their wagon running around the back of the pack where, and I feel bad saying this, people would expect to find a station wagon. For the use of the wagon to have the desired effect, you had to look at that big dumb brick flying around there and say, wait, what the hell? Uh, and to get there, TWR and Volvo had their work cut out for them. So BTCC rules for engines were both open in terms of what you could use and strict in terms of what you could do. Engines had to be two liters or less, no turbos or superchargers, no V8s. You had options. You could run a V6 or an inline four or whatever, or an inline five as Volvo was going to do. However, the head, the head had to be a factory casting, which is a rule to keep costs down. And we'll talk about that more in a second. So Volvo started with their 2.3 liter five cylinder, which they knocked down to two liters. Valve size was open, so they ran the biggest valves that they could, along with cams, because that size was open as well. What TWR came up with made 
about 260 horsepower, which is fine on its own, but short of the 285 to 290 most of the manufacturers were making. So coupled with the 850's large side size for the series, uh, TWR had a little bit of a puzzle on their hands because you couldn't have the largest and least powerful car on the grid. That just won't work. The main hang-up that TWR found was the cylinder head. According to Charlie Bamber, who's the chief engineer of TWR's Volvo engine program, uh, total valve angle on the head was 58 degrees, which isn't typically what you want in a race engine. You're looking at the valve axis being nearly 30 degrees from the cylinder's axis, when race engine valve angles are usually more in the 10 to 15 degree neighborhood per valve. The angle is set by Volvo's cost-cutting measure. Basically, you could drill both the intake and exhaust valves at once at 58 degrees. With a race setup, more like 25 total degrees, the machine heads that were drilling the holes would clash if you drilled them simultaneously. So the performance trade-off was worth it in a road engine that only made 142 horsepower, but wouldn't suit a race engine at all. The laid-back valve angle also made the combustion chamber larger, which increases chamber volume and decreases compression ratio, which decreases power. Compression, ra uh, compression ratio was unregulated by BTCC rules, so this is a key area to make power, but a very specific place where TWR was captive to Volvo's design. Additionally, the head couldn't support the physical size of the cams that TWR wanted to run. The base head could support a cam size for 300,000 to lift, and TWR apparently wanted to run, and I'm not sure if this is a typo, but this is what Charlie Bamberg said, he wanted to run 825,000 of lift, which is a shit ton of lift. <laughs> so, uh, the rulebook said you had to run a standard cylinder head, uh, a factory casting. You had to retain the standard valve angle, though you could make changes to run physically larger valves. You can make the valve port larger. You can't weld anything, but you can add material. You can also remove as much material as you want from the factory head casting. So this feels like a, a decent time to make a pit stop and talk about rules in general. It feels like back in you know 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they wrote rules that told you what you couldn't do. And the problem with that is that the guys building the cars are better at thinking of things that they can do than the guys writing the rules are at thinking of things that you can't do. So thinking of stuff like that, the main guy I think of is Smokey Eunuch. Uh, he's probably the guy most known for being creative with the rules. So if a, regu <laughs> a regulation said he wasn't allowed to port a Hudson intake manifold by hand, Smokey abided by that 100%. The regulation did not permit him from pumping abrasive compound through the manifold to port and polish it, so that's what he did. And when the rules stated that your maximum fuel tank size is 22 gallons, it didn't say that Smokey couldn't fit a 2-inch ID, 11-foot-long fuel line that held 5 gallons of gas. Uh, so this is, I think, why rules now tend to be written to tell you what you can do and just ban everything else. So thankfully for us, uh, so that we have something to talk about here, TWR was firmly in the camp of reading between the lines of the rules. The first thing to work on was the cams. So there was the bit in the rules where they were able to remove material from the head. Well, TWR simply cut the entire of the, the entirety of the cam carriers off the head and machined new ones that would bolt to it. So now you've got a head that will support the big lift cam, but a tiny production valve port that'll only flow the stock amount. Okay, fine. TWR cut back the head face where the ports were, which produced a much steeper angle to the valve. Material was then added to keep the required measurements between the valve port and the head face. So after that, TWR went to work on the combustion chamber. 
And from reading it, it looks like what they did was they basically cut the whole chamber out, reshaped it, dropped it further down into the head to make it smaller and raise compression while increasing flow. So now the head is sorted and the angles are still off. Okay, well, the rules don't say anything at all about how the head is to be mounted to the block. So TWR just lopped off some of the mounting surface of the head, which made it attach to the block at an angle. So the result of this was a steeper intake port and a shallower exhaust port, which are both more ideal for their purposes, but still within the regulations. Finally, TWR machined the heads, uh, I'm sorry, machined the pistons to get their desired compression ratio of 13.5 to 1. Standard was in the neighborhood of 8.5 to 1. Uh, Charlie Bamber said, you're now left with the section of the original head that says Volvo on it. Uh, from a 260 horsepower engine, TWR and Volvo now made 325 horsepower and ended up with the fastest car on the grid in a straight line in spite of having the largest frontal section. So the rules on the cylinder head were done in the name of cost cutting. I think I mentioned that earlier. Uh, Charlie Bamber, though, estimates that they spent $20,000 per head on these parts. Uh, if they had just been allowed to design a bespoke head for the car, he thinks it would have cost $20,000 in tooling, but then about $600 per head after that. This is a 1994 money, by the way. Uh, as it is today, rules to cut costs often lead to much more elaborate, expensive, and interesting ways to circumvent the rules. So a thing that I really enjoy about this is just the thought of, you know, the car going to scrutineering and, you know, a, an inspector taking a look at it and saying, well, this is obviously illegal. And then somebody from TWR having to just like explain to them in excruciating detail for like an hour and a half how every single thing that they did on the head is legal within the rules. <laughs> I don't know, just for some reason I get a kick out of that. So, well, this is legal? Nope. Nope. Perfectly legal. How about this? Nope. Nope. Also very legal. Uh, as far as the rest of the car, it was a pretty standard BTCC, uh, BTCC setup. Uh, it was a front wheel drive, six speed sequential gearbox. Uh, as BTCC at the time actually also had a pretty cool variety of cars in it, so I'd like to just speak very briefly about them. So BMW's effort was uh, was done by Team Schnitzer. They brought the 318i, which is a rear-wheel drive four-door three-series. So that was your 93 reigning champions. Um, they actually took the, uh, the overall, their first and second in the driver's championship, so naturally they won the constructor's championship. Uh, Vauxhall brought the Cavalier, which is no relation to the J-body North American Chevy Cavalier. Ford brought the Mondeo, uh, which I mentioned at the beginning. If you're American, you know that car is a Contour or even a Mercury Mistake, uh, Mercury Mystique. Sorry, we used to call it the Mercury Mistake back then. Um, Ford was actually using a two-liter Cosworth V6 in this car, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, Toyota was there with the Carina E, which through a little bit of looking around, I figured out, I guess it's like the Euro version of the Corona, which is a four-door version of the Celica, or at least it exists on a modified version of the Celica platform. Uh, Mazda showed up with the Zedos XEDOS 6, which I guess is kind of vaguely related to the Mazda MX-6. So Zedos was Mazda's luxury brand at the time. Uh, and like Ford, Mazda also brought a V6 engine. Renault brought a new car for 94, which is the Laguna, which was replacing the Renault 19. Uh, Peugeot brought the 405 MI16. Lastly, we have Nissan, uh, who had the Primera, which is a Infiniti G20, if you're an American. Uh, and Alfa Romeo, along with Volvo, was new this season. They brought the 155. So 
how'd the season go? All right. Well, it's actually a pretty dominant win for the newcomer, Alpha, <laughs> but not 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 our newcomer. It was Alpha Romeo. Uh, so in the regulations, Alpha noticed that wings and spoilers could be used as long as they were fitted on some road cars. So Alpha produced a version of their 155, which is called the Silverstone, that had large wings, which gave them an aero advantage. Uh, their top driver was Gabriele Tarquini, took the first five wins of the season before Alpha was protested and told to run without aero, which Alpha protested and they refused to do. Eventually, an agreement was reached. Alpha ran with lower spoilers, but they still won eight races in total and ran away with the championship. So what about our guys with the long roof? So the season didn't start out great. Uh, BTCC only awards points inside the top 10. It took until the fifth round at Elton Park for Volvo to score the first points, which is the fifth place for Rickard Rydell. So he would actually end up scoring points in eight of the 14 remaining rounds. He finished 14th in the championship with 27 points. Jan Lammers would struggle a little bit more than Rydell did. He wouldn't score points until round seven at Brands Hatch. He would only score points on four more occasions, finishing 15th behind Rydell with 18 points. This would actually be Lammers' only year in BTCC. I guess he didn't care for the, let's call it physical, uh, racing in touring cars. Uh, Volvo's total of 45 points placed them 8th in the championship out of 10 teams. Unfortunately uh, for our story, Alfa Romeo's dominance of the season with their wings and spoilers, you know, not really a roundabout way, but a very specific way, meant the end of the 850 estate as a race car. The following season, Toka announced that wings and spoilers were legal for everybody, with the caveat that they could not stick up higher than the roof of the car. The addition of a rear spoiler to the saloon body, coupled with the inability to add it to the estate, spelled the end for the 850 wagon after only a single season. It's not all sorrow, though, because uh, the 850 estate did actually accomplish what it set out to do, and it certainly got people talking about Volvo. And TWR did get the car working pretty decently by the end of the year. In fact, to such an extent that Rickard Rydell would actually take pole for Volvo uh, in both races of the first round of the next season, and Volvo's first win in the second one of those. Volvo would go on to win four races in 1995 and finish third in the championship. So I was actually happy to find out with this car, it does actually appear in one racing sim that I own, which is uh, Race 07. So Race 07 was, uh, there was, they did GT Legends, and then they did GTR, and then they did Race, which was like a touring car you know, version of Simbin's sim. And so I was just looking around in... Uh, race 07 and it actually has the 850 wagon along with the s40 you know the the later car uh available to drive so all right fine so i'll fire that up take it for a little ride uh i actually drove it at laguna seca which is not a track that the car ever ran on but it's a track in the game that i'm most familiar with so i figured that was a good place to drive it neat car sounds good uh you know the the five cylinder inline has kind of a, a kind of a medium pitch kind of sound to it i don't know how true the game is to the actual car um you know and i realize it's also a 14 year old game 14 year old physics which is nice because actually it means it runs really well on my kind of crappy acer gaming laptop but yeah you can sort of chuck it around and racing against other 850 wagons and you, know, you can bang doors and all that kind of stuff so it's a it's it's a cool car to drive you know it's you just sort of pitch it in it's it actually to tell you I mean, you know compared with 
another front wheel drive car, the GTR LM Nismo, you know, from, uh, from Gran Turismo last week. I, I think I actually prefer the physics and race. I think it's, you know, the car's not super fast, but you know, it's, it's quick enough. It gets out of its own way and you just kind of throw it in there. You could, uh, you can induce a little bit of a, a little bit of oversteer if you want to. I found that was easy enough to do. It's actually pretty easy car to throw around uh to throw around the track and race 07 so if you have access to that game and are interested in driving the car i recommend it check it out so that is pretty much it for the career of the volvo 850 estate as a touring car which i guess is kind of disappointing i wish that toka would have outlawed wings instead of just you know letting everybody run them you know because then maybe we would have seen another season or two of the wagon and if, you know, if TWR continued working on it and, you know, got it working better, maybe we would have actually seen, you know, the, the station wagon out there taking victories and stuff, which I think would be pretty cool. But they went the other way instead of no wings. It was wings for everybody. And I mean, I guess it worked out OK for Volvo. Uh, Rydell would eventually win uh, a championship, you know, for Volvo. I think that was after they switched. Uh, they stopped using the 850 and they started using the S40 instead. But you know, it, it's it's a car with a cool. You know, I guess it's kind of a cool note in history. You know, it's not a. You know, it didn't hang around long. It didn't do a ton of stuff. But you know, how often do you get to see a racing station wagon? I mean, honestly. So that's pretty much it for that car. I haven't yet decided uh, what I'm going to do next week. I do think I'm going to go back to Formula One. Uh, because you know formula one coming up it's imola so maybe it'll be a red car i don't know i haven't made my mind yet so anyway uh like i said you can follow me on uh on twitter at race car podcast if you have you know any cars that you want to hear about you know shoot me a dm there shoot me an email uh race car podcast at gmail.com but uh yeah thanks for listening guys and uh i'll talk to you soon